Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you for uh, returning to church this evening to hear a little bit more from Sean. I've had a couple people ask uh, just over this, um, uh, just this reception just now and later on, or earlier this morning, rather, how, how we don't really look like alike, like how do we go to oil and water or something? How do you know, Sean? And uh, the uh, quick answer to that is uh, Sean is uh, quick to, um, at least in my experience, say yes to invitations to uh, step into other church communities for a spell and share what it is that he knows. So um, when, his fir- when this book first came out, um, I uh, fell in love with it very quickly. It was introduced to me at a conference. And I started um, buying them in bulk to share with my volunteer leaders and other folks that were part of that ministry with me. <clears throat> and then in 2012 or 2011, we can't quite remember, that church uh, has an annual family conference. And I suggested that we invite Sean to speak um, so everyone would be able to hear from him who'd already been reading his book. And uh, we extended the invitation, and he said yes. We had a really delightful um, weekend at Mount Hermon in uh, California, and since then we've uh, just kept contact and um, was so glad to be able to use his book in this way uh, over this fall. was even more thankful that he was able to make this weekend work. Um, if I could just as a brief introduction why it is that I love uh, this book so much and even what we're doing this fall. Um, you might know This might actually describe you. It actually uh, often describes me. In my own Christian practice, I usually read very short, focused sections of Scripture. And over time, even the most mature and constant of believers, they lose sight of the whole story. We end up, unintentionally, I think, sometimes treating the Bible like a, a, a good sort of spiritual fortune cookie for the day. And uh, there are things in scriptures that are good, that can even be worth memorizing, that are just in short, very succinct sentences, and yet also, those are always embedded in much larger context. And what I loved about his book, and what I love about what he's going to do for us tonight, is it sets the things that we usually do if we have a, a practice like that, it sets them inside the frame of the much larger story. So, uh, Sean, thank you for being willing to uh, say yes yeah. and to be part of this tonight. Uh, let me offer a word of prayer, and uh, he is, um, then he'll share a bit, and after, after that, we'll have a time of what he um, corrected me. It's not Q&A, it's Q&R, question and response, um, and I'll leave you to wrestle with the difference between those two things. And let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll get uh, underway. Gracious Holy God. <clears throat> We are so thankful that you've gathered uh, us here together tonight to be reminded of this full story that we see captured in the pages of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us and instruct us, and may we find our hearts strangely warmed once again for the, the whole scope of the promise of the Scriptures themselves. I thank you for Sean and his willingness to come and share. I thank you for his warmth and his whimsy. Lord, may all those things uh, come out tonight as well. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. Thanks, mate. Well, look, this is lovely. Like, there's a crowd at five o'clock on a, on a Sunday. That that is fantastic. And you're not like all sitting at the back. Like some of you are actually sitting up close. So it makes me feel even better. Uh, so thanks for coming out on a Sunday afternoon, or I guess evening now. Uh, I'm delighted. It's, been, it's just been lovely to be with you all. Uh, with the staff for retreat, and then uh, here this morning to meet some of you, hear a little bit of some of your stories, uh, and just it's always encouraging as an author to meet people who've read your book and actually liked it. Um, so thank you for all the positive feedback I've gotten. Uh, I'm also delighted to know that you're spending, you've committed as a community, as this church, to, to spend the next year reading, spending a lot of time intentionally in, in the Bible. Uh, and tonight I'm going to attempt to tell the story I think the Bible is telling, uh, in about 20 minutes. Uh, and, uh, but before I do that, I, I want to, uh, to talk about another story uh, with you. Um, how many of you have ever seen the movie Mary Poppins? Has anyone never seen the movie Mary Poppins? All right, I see that hand, thank you. Uh, and apparently, like, there's a sequel coming out. I keep seeing, like, links to... Is that right? All right. Anyone excited for a sequel to Mary Poppins? Okay, great. How many of you have ever seen the trailer for the original movie? Oh, all right. Well, we're going to take just a moment to watch that uh, in case you've forgotten some of what the movie is about. So let's just take a moment to watch the trailer for Mary Poppins. So you're feeling all the warm fuzzies from the last time you watched that movie? <laughs> if you'd never seen the movie, or if you had never read the book, or knew nothing about it, what kind of movie would you think you were about to watch, having watched that trailer? A horror movie, right? Is Mary Poppins a horror movie? No. Would you agree with me that every single clip in there is from the movie? It's just been taken out of its context, shoved together to tell a very different story than the movie is actually telling. I wonder if we do that with the Bible. I wonder if we pull verses out from here and there and we shove them together in an order to make the Bible tell a story that it's not actually telling. And when people confront us about that, we say, well, look, it's right there in black and white on the pages. I think we do that all the time. And uh, I think often the folk who have rejected the Scripture and the story that is in there have not rejected the story itself. They've rejected the version that they have heard. 
And more importantly, they've rejected the story that they have seen in the lives of those who tell stories like this. Uh, here's the, the big story I grew up hearing. Uh, I do not come from a, a long line of Presbyterians or Methodists or Anglicans or anything. There was no one in my family who had ever gone to church as far as we're aware on either side, my mum's or my dad's. Uh, I have three brothers. All four of us are within three years as twins in the middle. And uh, on Sunday mornings, there was a little Brethren Chapel down the road, uh, and my parents encouraged us to go to church because I think they enjoyed a, a little quiet time in the house on Sunday mornings. So uh, I grew up in the church, even though I didn't necessarily grow up in a home where we read the Bible or prayed or anything. Um, and that little Brethren Chapel, every Sunday night, was the gospel service. And uh, so there were itinerant preachers from all over Norfolk and England, where I'm from, who would come, and every Sunday night we would hear the gospel whether we needed to or not. And they often thought us teenagers needed to hear the gospel because they seemed to always look at us in the back when they were preaching. This is the story that I grew up hearing the Bible was telling. And see if this sounds somewhat familiar. Uh, there is a problem, and that problem is me. More specifically, that I am a sinner. And because God is holy and I am a sinner, I cannot be with God. Uh, and so if I die as a sinner, uh, I cannot go to be with God in heaven because God cannot have sin in God's presence, and so I will go to hell. And you don't want to go to hell. The good news is that that doesn't have to be my destiny, that Jesus died on the cross, took the punishment that my sins deserved, and if I believe that and accept Jesus as my Savior, invite Him into my heart, uh, I don't have to go to hell when I die, but I can go to heaven. And uh, for the rest of my life until that, I just try to live a good life. Now, I know that's a very simple version, but that's basically the gospel that I heard every Sunday night in Medway Chapel in Helsden in England. Uh, I can still walk you down the Roman road of salvation. I can uh, tell you the four spiritual laws uh, I can draw a little illustration of all of this on a napkin in a restaurant, if you like, where there's two cliffs, and I'm on this side, and God's on this side. Anyone, oh, I see some nods. Anyone ever done this? Yeah, campus ministry stuff, right? And you draw a, cro a cross, and you can walk across the bridge that the cross makes from this side towards God. Um, here's what strikes me about that story. It is primarily rooted in fear. And it is primarily presented as a way to avoid going to hell. Uh, and while fear is indeed and can be a very powerful short-term motivator for change, uh, it does not usually lead to long-term transformation. At least it didn't for me. And the truth is that most of my family still, and many of my friends, do not find that story compelling at all. Uh, and perhaps that's true for some of us here tonight. And let's face it, that version of the story, that version of the gospel, is some serious cliff notes. I mean, my Bible back home, it's about 1,500 pages long. I think your new pew Bibles are about 1,200 pages long. And if that's the gospel, then I think God probably needed an editor. Because there's all kinds of stuff in here that has nothing to do with that story. Maybe God could have 
cut some of that stuff out to make it a little less confusing when we actually pick this book up. I think the biggest clue to the fact that the story I grew up hearing, the gospel I grew up hearing being a truncated version, um, is that uh, right there at the beginning of the New Testament, uh, not in the inspired words, but literally on the first page, which says what? The gospel according to Matthew. And then a little bit longer. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to John. And what we find there is not a series of theological doctrinal propositions for us to agree with or not, for us to believe with. We find the story of Jesus. And the gospel, to me, seems to be deeply rooted in the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus is deeply rooted in the story of the Hebrew people, the children of Abraham. And so if we want to understand the story of Jesus, then we have to understand the story that His story is rooted in. And that's the challenge with the Scriptures, is that most of us have yet to hear that story. Even those of us who may have been reading the Bible our whole lives. That was true for me. I didn't hear that story until I was in my 30s, in seminary in a class on the New, in New Testament theology where two-thirds of the way into the semester, we were still reading the Hebrew Bible and scratching our heads why we were reading the Hebrew Bible in New Testament theology. And then I found out why. The gospel is not a series of abstract theological doctrines to be believed. I believe it's the story of Jesus, something to actually live into Three things strike me about that way of telling the story, the way I grew up hearing. One is that way of telling the story misses the beginning of the story in Scripture, right? We start in Genesis chapter 3 with the problem with sin, and we miss the first two chapters of the story. We miss the story of creation. The second thing that strikes me is we miss the end of the story because we end the story in heaven. And we miss the last two chapters of Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, which talk about the new creation. As Christians, we don't just believe in life after death. We believe in life after life after death. Heaven is the place we go while we're waiting for what is yet to come. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The third thing that strikes me about that way of telling the story is it really has been profoundly shaped by our Western culture, which is one of radical individualism. Uh, the story is about me the sinner in need of a personal savior, so that I am at the center of the story. It's my need for a savior, and I invite God into my life, and so God becomes part of my story. Rather than it being the story of God, that God has always been center stage, and all of us, our glory is just for a moment in that epic story, we get to be on the stage with Jesus. When I first came to the United States in the early 90s, I did campus ministry in Texas. And one of my dearest friends tried to convert me to American football. <laughs> and not just to American football, but to the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Any Cowboys fans in here? I'm probably in the wrong place, aren't I? <laughs> like, yeah, don't admit that, come on. 
Every Sunday afternoon, I would be in his apartment, and we would watch football, and he would explain it to me. And I figured out early on that there were a lot of profoundly religious football fans who loved to make themselves present, and their presence felt during the point-after attempt. Because suddenly this sign would appear between the goalposts. Maybe, I don't know if they still do this because I really don't watch football anymore. But uh, what was often on that sign, and maybe still is, John 3.16. Yeah, maybe they still do that. And what does John 3.16 say? And I want to hear it in the King James Version. For God so loved the world. Wow. You know, the last time I did this, people started strong and ended weak. But you just kept right on going. What does it say? For God so loved the world, literally the cosmos, all that God has made. The story of God is not about a collection of individuals who have believed certain theological doctrines and invited Jesus to be their personal Savior, and who are trying to tell other people so that they too can avoid hell and go to heaven. It is the story of the Creator God who loves the world that God has made and who will not abandon God's creation to all that our sin has done to it and to each other. The story of God, I believe, is not one of us ultimately escaping this broken world into heaven, but it is of God healing this broken world through the new creation. So, for the next 20 minutes, I want to take us on a whirlwind tour of the Bible and try and tell that story from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And there's all kinds of ways of telling the story, and I'm going to try and do it through one of the lenses that the Apostle Paul provides in his letter to the church in Rome. So let me read for you what Paul writes in this letter that we have now given numbers to help us find our way around in the letter in chapter 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and daughters for the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for what one sees? 
Ah, but if we hope for what we have not seen, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for that. The whole of creation groans. And not only this, but we ourselves groan within ourselves. The creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the children of God. We await eagerly for our adoption, for the redemption of our body. What on earth is Paul talking about? Let me tell you a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke, and there was life. God spoke, and there was a world where all of God's good creation could flourish. God made human beings, male and female, created in the image of God. And God blessed those humans, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and be the agents of my sovereign rule over the rest of creation. God gave us good food, vegetables, and fruit. God also gave that to the birds and the animals. And our role, our calling as human beings, was to ensure that the world that God created and loved would remain a place where all of life, all of the creation could flourish. Humanity was given the vocation of tilling and caring for the soil to tend and encourage its fertility to ensure that there would always be enough food for every living creature. Life in the garden was good. It was very good. Until, until the serpent came and tempted us to doubt the goodness of God tempted us to become like God, to begin to think of ourselves as big deals. And so we ignored the abundance of the garden, and we reached out, and we took, and we ate the one fruit that was not ours to enjoy. And as the juice ran down our chins, great fissures, great cracks opened up in the harmony of God's creation. Sin appeared in God's good creation, and a fourfold alienation began. For we are alienated from God, from one another, from the rest of creation. Some of us aren't even at home in our own bodies. And all of these divisions that we live with distort God's purposes for God's creation. And they cry out for healing and for reconciliation because the whole of creation groans. Well, we are sent into exile east of Eden, banished from the garden and from access to the tree of life. And there those divisions only magnify. Brother, killing brother, Violence entering our story for the first time until the earth is filled with violence because of us. A great flood offers the chance to start again, although now the animals become food for us 
And so they learn to fear us because the whole of creation groans. But we do not learn. We still hear the voice of the serpent. We still want to be big deals. And refusing to fill the earth, instead we gather together in one place on the plain of Shinar, there to build a city and a tower which will reach into heaven so we might make a name for ourselves. But God comes down to thwart our plans and scatters us across the earth. However, God does not abandon us to our fate to live with these divisions forever. For God spoke, saying to Abraham, I will give you land. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. For God promises Abraham what tower builders crave. And then God says, And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God makes a people for God's self, a people who will be the agents of God's work of reconciliation and of healing the creation. But Abraham was powerless to do this himself. He and his wife Sarah were childless. Have no doubt this was God's work to do, but through Abraham's willingness to be obedient. So after a false start, with unexpected consequences for trying to help God out a little bit, as some of us are wont to do, along comes the miraculous gift of a son, Isaac. And then comes Jacob, who God renames Israel. And Israel has Joseph. And Joseph, as we heard this morning, those of us who are here, gets us down into Egypt. Centuries pass. Successive dynasties make a name for themselves in Egypt. The pharaohs become very big deals indeed. But only at the expense of just about everybody else in Egypt, as is usually the case with big deals, including the descendants of Abraham who now find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God spoke, saying to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people. I am aware of their suffering. And so I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land of slavery and into a good and spacious land flowing with milk and honey. And God does just that. God sets them free. And the Exodus event becomes identity-shaping for God's people Israel, because the God of the story is the one who sets people free, who liberates us from bondage to all that enslaves us, from all that intensifies the divisions that we live with, whether they are caused by other individuals, by social systems, by the addictions and compulsions that alienate us from ourselves, from each other, and from the very ground from which we were taken, humans from humus. Well, then in the desert of Sinai, God spoke all these words, ten words, ten commandments, this transforming covenant, the very means by which God will transform slaves into human beings, the very means by which we learn what it means to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself, 
our neighbor, who we first encounter in the face of the slave, in the fourth word, the one about keeping Sabbath, the day when everyone, everyone gets to rest, even our livestock. And in those words are also provision for caring for the land, the soil that God has given us, and for caring for the vulnerable poor in our midst, the orphan, the widow, and the immigrant. And there is also the year of jubilee, so that no one in Israel can accumulate property and wealth. No one can become big deals because of other people's misfortune or simply their poor choices. And then, the climax of the story, God comes down once more to dwell in their midst, in the tabernacle. And as they kept this covenant that they made with God at Sinai, they would become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, for they would show them what a people living in, the ob in obedience to God can flourish together. But they did not keep covenant with God. In time, they would reject God as their sovereign. Instead, they demanded their own king so that they could be like the other nations. They wanted their own big deal to lead them into battle. And just about every one of their big deals led them into breaking covenant with God over and over and over again. Only one, King Uzziah, loved the soil. But then he built his army. He too became proud and switched from humus to hubris. He too broke covenant with God. And so, finally, after centuries of speaking to the people through the prophets, calling them back to covenant faithfulness, wooing them back to God's self, after centuries of being ignored, God finally sent God's people out of the land God had given them into exile in Babylon as judgment for breaking covenant and to give the land the Sabbath rest they had refused to give it. For the whole of creation groans. Then God spoke to the people in exile through the prophet Jeremiah saying, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare lies your welfare. Be a blessing even here, even to your enemies. Well, after 70 years in Babylon, that the land might get its rest, they return from exile, a broken people. And for five long centuries, they find themselves under the boot of one empire after another, and they wait for God to speak again. They wait for God to act, to deliver them from their enemies. They wait for a new exodus, but only silence. Then God spoke. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. My friends, God keeps covenant with us even when we will not keep covenant with God. God assumes our problem as God's own and becomes one of us to do for us what we simply cannot do for ourselves. And 30 years later, on the Sabbath day, the Word announces what He has come to do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God anointed me to preach good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. A new exodus is finally at hand. Well, the Word become flesh, Jesus calls twelve disciples. God once more living in the midst of God's people, Israel. And a people begins to form around Jesus, but it's the wrong people. It's the poor. It's the sinners in Israel. The people who the big deals in Israel say are the very problem with Israel. And so Jesus begins to upset the big deals. And after three years of proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God that has come and is coming on earth as it is in heaven, demonstrating the kingdom through healing people, delivering people from the demonic, even raising people from the dead. After embodying a very different story than all the other stories we tell about what life is really all about, the big deals conspire together to stretch out Jesus' hands on a cross and put him to death for telling and living the story that we simply do not want to hear. And so, on the sixth day of the week, Pontius Pilate, governor in Judea, displays a brutalized Jesus to the gathered crowds and says, Behold the man! For, unbeknownst to Pilate, here is the man. Here is the true human. Here is the image bearer. The one who shows us what humans were always created to be. And we killed him. But, and in God's story, there is always but when Rome had done its worst to Jesus, when the religious establishment in Jerusalem had done its worst to Jesus, when you and I had done our worst to Jesus, God showed us that sin and violence and death do not have the last word. God does. And that word is always life. And so when Mary, the first apostle, came to anoint Jesus' dead body for burial instead of a corpse, she found the resurrected Jesus 
And who did she mistake him for? The gardener. Of course. Because here in a garden, on the first day of the week, the new creation begins. Jesus, the second Adam, lives as the first fruits of the resurrection. It is the beginning of the end of exile. And the cry goes out to all humanity, come home. All that alienates us, all the divisions we live with can now finally be healed and reconciled. Well, Jesus, God the Son, the resurrected human being, ascends into the realm of heaven to take His place at the right hand of God the Father in order that God the Holy Spirit may come to continue the work of reconciliation. And on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, what happened on the plains of Shinar at the Tower of Babel is reversed. For God spoke, this time in the language of every tribe and people gathered there in Jerusalem. And then once more, God comes down to tabernacle in the midst of God's people in the person of the Spirit. And that people begin finally to embody the covenant, to embody the story together, sharing all that they had so that there was no one in need among them. Everyone began to flourish until the wrong people showed up again, those Gentiles. And God has to show the church time and time and time again that God wants a people for God's self, a people formed from all the peoples of the earth, every tribe, every language, every tongue. But, and there's always a but in our story too, 2,000 years later, those divisions are still very much with us. We are still living out the narratives of the big deals. Our world is still filled with violence. And the creation is still groaning. It's no wonder that so many of us want the story about escaping this world into heaven and not the story of God healing this world because of all that implies for us as we are sent into the world as agents of God's sovereign work, the work of new creation, the work of reconciliation, the work of peacemaking. But God is still speaking. And Paul exhorts us, if we wait for what we have not seen yet, with perseverance, we will wait eagerly for that. And what, my friends, are we waiting for? For the return of Jesus. For that day when the new creation will finally come in all of its fullness, for the day when we will finally return once and for all from exile and will gather once and for all as one people around the tree of life once more, whose leaves are now for the healing of the nations, there to live in the new creation, on the new earth forever. 
For the one who sits on the throne spoke, saying, Behold, I am making all things new. That, my friends, is the story of God, the story of us. That, I believe, is a story worth telling. And more importantly, is a story worth living. Amen. Amen. Oh, I never get tired of telling that story. Oh, it wrecked me. Changed the whole direction of our life. And uh, we're still trying to figure out how to live more faithfully into this story. So, I think it was about 20 minutes or so, which gives us about 30 minutes or so uh, to interact together so it's not all one way. So, um, now it's over to you. What do you want to talk about? Uh, we can talk about the story. We can talk about your experience of reading the book. We can talk about whatever you like. I think we have some microphones uh, that some fit young folk are going to run around with. So if you would like to say something or ask a question, uh, it's over to you. Put, maybe put your hand up and make him run around a little bit. I see that hand. Uh, is this on? Oh. Two things. The first thing is, uh, have you ever read the book All Things New by Eldridge? John I Eldridge? have not. It is a wonderful All illustration right. of what you are saying about what the new earth will be like. Excellent. Uh, and then there's another question that kind of, I'm not really expecting an answer to it, but everything that God made was good, correct? That's so what the story tells us. Why did he make the tree of good and evil? Uh -huh. At some point in time, were we like, was God waiting for humanity to reach a certain point of flourishing or maturity, and then he would allow us to eat from it? Were we always meant to leave the garden and fill the rest of the earth? Uh, I mean, it's not a question of like shaking faith or anything. It's just a curiosity, like what... That tree yeah. is a curious thing. Yeah, that's a great question. Anyone else have that, <laughs> that, that question? Like, did God set us up to fall? You know, why, why put that there, right? That's a great question. And, and like Eric alluded to, I, I, I don't believe I have answers anymore. I used to think I did. Uh, but now I think what I have is responses. Um, and together, as we have this kind of dialogue, uh, I find that, that, not that things make more sense to me, but that I find more peace in, in, in what I understand. So why, why would there be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, to tempt those poor first humans? I don't know. Uh, I wonder, I wonder if there... Uh, they uh, had the opportunity to, to think, wow, is that the only way to get that kind of knowledge? Do we, do, do we want that kind of knowledge? Maybe we should go ask God what's good, what's evil. Um, so for me, that tree 
whatever it was, we discussed whatever the fruit was over lunch. Pomegranate, was that what the, the, the number one choice? Uh, whatever it was, um, I think it symbolizes for me something I am all too familiar with, which is I, I want to shortcut the process in life and take the easier, softer road uh, rather than do the hard work, the lengthy work of becoming the human being I think I was created to be. And so that tree for me just symbolizes, like, why, why go there? Why, why not go to God and ask? Like, I know full well why you go there, because you can get it and get it done. Yeah, there's power there. I'm just going to do that. And maybe in time, God would have said, you know what, you're ready now for that knowledge. I don't know. All I do know is that I am very familiar with the voice of the serpent that says, did God really say that about that? You sure about that? Look at it. Oh, doesn't it look lovely? And it's going to make you wise. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. So I think that's how I would respond to your question. I don't know what it was. I don't know why it's there but I know what it symbolizes for me. What's very interesting about that tree, though, is... Here, use the, use the microphone so people can oh, hear. Oh. What's really interesting... Oh, after reading it, after reading your book on this, I was kind of coming to the realization that, you know, they were looking at the tree and they were looking at how pleasing it was to the eye. And I'm thinking, God made all the other trees in the garden pleasing to look at. And obviously, Adam and Eve saw this tree and didn't have any real desire to eat from it. But I feel like what happened with the garden is the serpent told them that this fruit would make them like gods, and a simple admiration of beauty started to become lust because it started to fit their purposes. Mm. So instead of being able to enjoy the visual pleasures and the other fruit out there, they became so fixated on this one fruit, and then the more they fixated on that, the more it became pleasing to them. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe because so. God made beauty. Yeah. He made Adam and Eve, you know, he wanted them to enjoy the wonders of his work. But something went really wrong there. Yeah. Well, thanks. thanks. Thank you. Oh. All right, anybody else got thoughts? Uh, Questions, observations, a burning desire to say something. Hi, thanks. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the difference between this story and the other story. Between? The difference between the sort of four spiritual laws, right? It's, you, you set it up as sort of like the boogeyman at the beginning, like this is the bad way, this is the good way. But I think there's, there's a lot of good reasons why people make it about making a decision. Because I know yeah. lots of people would say, that's awesome. And that's good, that, that, great. Good story, man. There's yeah. a lot of good stories. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a, I mean, there's this thing we have to do where we walk into it, or we put it on, or we make a decision for it, or we cast away, or we turn away, or we turn towards, right? all that part. Um, wasn't at least at, at the center of this, like, just love to hear thoughts about how you came to this place where you're at now. Yeah, so um, every time I read the Gospels, and that's where I sort of live in, in the Bible, 
I don't, it doesn't amaze me anymore, but it still kind of does. That the disciples, those 12 men, especially the sort of inner circle of the school, um, were with Jesus all the time for three years, and they still didn't have a clue who he was. Right? They're in the presence of, the, of God incarnate, and they see all that he does, and they hear what he says, and yet they still don't get it. Peter argues with him about what it means to be the Messiah. <laughs> And so it just strikes me as like, if I, if I think I can understand some abstract theological doctrines that have been constructed over a long time and are true, um, and then that's going to transform my life so I'll be a faithful human being, uh, I think, well, really? And apparently for me, that's not how it worked. Because I heard those things, and they did not transform my life. I came to faith, and I got baptized, and it did not transform my life. Um, it was only as I began to realize, oh, this isn't just about knowing some information. This is about actually conforming my life to what this information points to. And that's another thing altogether. So I read the Sermon on the Mount. I think the short blueprint for what it means to be a human being living in community. I'm like, I get lost after like the first 20 words. Really? That's how I have to live? Love my enemies? Turn the other cheek? Um, I think it's, I kind of I like, I kind of wish I could go back to just believing that simple four spiritual laws. That, you know, It's true. It's just not the whole story. And, and again, my experience is it does not lead for most of us to the transformation I believe the gospel has, is, is intended to have in our life. The story of Jesus should wreck us. And yet I think if we were honest to say what story actually shapes my life and my values, I'm not sure it is the gospel. I think there's all kinds of stories we tell in this culture about what the good life is, what you should do, um, that I think are actually running exactly counter to the gospel. Um, and the trouble is, most of us don't even know that's the story we're actually living out of because we come show up in here on Sundays and we hear that gospel and we pray and we read the Bible. At least for me, that's what it was like for years and years and years. And then I heard this other story and it just confronted the story I was living out of and I realized... I can't live out of that story anymore. And my life has gotten a lot harder, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I'll tell you right now, we're, we're in all kinds of interesting times as a family uh, because of trying to be committed to the story we are giving our allegiance to and to the, the one whose story this is. And life isn't working out as it's supposed to for people with graduate degrees and, and all of that. Um, but we keep trying because this story has changed our life. It's changed my life. Um, part of my story is addiction, and uh, I could not pray my addiction away. Uh, I could not surrender my life to God enough. I kept coming back to it, um, and I found myself listening to a bunch of drunks in a room who talked about prayer in a way I, I, I didn't understand. Um, 
And I began to say, well, they, they seem to have been changed. Perhaps that's possible for me too. And, uh, and my addiction is not alcohol, um, but uh, something else. And I started going to meetings for that. And what I realized was in the evangelical tradition in which I grew up in, uh, where the gospel is admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died for you, accept him as your Lord and Savior. And really what we mean is accept him as your Savior. <laughs> the Lord part we're a little wibbly-wobbly about uh, so that you can go to heaven. But then your life doesn't change that much. Mine didn't. Um, and I discovered really the evangelical church is really good at the one, two, three, twelve steps. If we were to take the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, if we admit that we're a sinner, we come to believe that God can do something about our sin, we make a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understand God, and then we tell other people what's happened. And we miss steps four through eleven, which is the hard work of actually being conformed to the one who has saved us. We don't take a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. We don't confess the exact nature of our wrongs to God, ourselves, and another human being. We don't make a list of all the people we have harmed as sinners. We don't try to make amends to them all unless to do so would injure them or others. We work kind of on improving our conscious contact with God in prayer. Um, we try to somewhat practice these principles in all our affairs. But many of us simply never get to having a spiritual awakening as a result of this work. So that then we do actually have to offer something to those who still suffer. Um, so I um, had a theological understanding of justification and sanctification, justifying grace and sanctifying grace. And it was the program a 12-step program that taught me actually how to live that out. Um, I think everyone should become an addict just so you can get sober. <laughs> um, and, the, and as Dallas Willard said in one of his last books, any serious program of discipleship in the 21st century, anything that actually leads to the transformation of people is going to look very similar to the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and uh, I believe that to be true. Um, and uh, I believe the God of the story so wants to set people free from all that has them in bondage, so loves people that that God doesn't even need to get the credit for doing it. And my work is to say, let me tell you about the God of my understanding, the story that I'm living out of. I've, I met that God in the rooms, and I learned a lot more about that God in the pages of this book, and I was able to give him a name. Uh, but God wants people to be free. That's what blows me away. So that's something of a response. I hope that's an... Is that Rich's hand? I see all the way back at the back. Who has a wonderful beard himself. Uh, Sean, just just very briefly, I think the four spiritual laws are a very brief summation of Luther's gospel. And that doesn't speak to our age. It's not wrong, but Luther's age was totally different. Yeah. 
there had been a thousand years of hearing the law of God. Everybody knew they were a sinner, and they didn't know what to do about it. And Luther, kaboom. But our age is a very different one. And you're right about 12-step groups. They do speak to our age. Yeah, yeah. And my brothers grew up hearing that same story as I did. Uh, and they all walked away. Um, one of them uh, uh, has become a brother in the Lord. Uh, I, I've had the privilege of seeing both of my parents come to faith and baptizing them both, uh, to see one of my brothers and his wife and son uh, and come to faith and baptize them. Uh, but my other two brothers, they could care less that this story is not compelling, or at least the story they heard. Um, um, so for those of us who have loved ones who don't know the Lord yet, uh, keep praying. I mean, God, God got his hand on me in our family and the ripples of God's work have spread out slowly. Um, so keep praying for your family. Thanks. Uh, I'm next. Hello, so Kathy. You, you started to even address my question. What happens to my father who could die without knowing Jesus or to my grandparents? I mean, what is hell and is there any hope? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, and, and I'm almost kind of hesitant to respond to that um, for lots of reasons. Uh, the story that I find in the Bible and the story that I see embodied in people in whom I recognize Jesus uh, The idea that there is a place of eternal torment and that once we're there, God is powerless to do anything about that. Uh, the idea that God is powerless um, is something I wrestle with. Uh, I, I believe God's love is God's power. Um, I believe that God never stops loving the people God has made. Um, but I, I don't know. Like, none of us know. We can't know. And that, that's what faith is, is, is not knowing and living a certain way anyway. And so because I don't know about that, uh, I, I, I tend not to spend a lot of time thinking about that because what I do know about is the very real hell that my neighbors live with right now whose lives are utterly the opposite of flourishing. I know what the hell of addiction is. Um, and so I don't know about that, but I know about this. And I know what God has to say about this. And so... I, try and sp I, I do spend most of my time, if I think about hell, it's this hell, the hell that people live with now. Because that's something I can actually feel like I, 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 I can partner with God in doing something about. The, what happens there? I, I, I am just trusting my family and the people I love who would not give their allegiance to Jesus. Uh, that, that, as I said, death does not have the last word in life. God does. 
And I don't know what the judgment of God is, but I believe it's going to be rooted in God's love. And I don't think, um, I don't think that dying means that suddenly God can no longer do what God wants to do with us. If I had to put it anywhere, because my, my guess is you want some, <laughs> but if I had to put it, I, I feel like it's uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia in the last battle. If you're familiar with that, C.S. Lewis, I think, reveals some of his theology about this with the dwarves who are sitting in the midst of the great land where Aslan reigns um, and refusing to see where they are and huddled down and acting as if they weren't there. And that I believe we can put ourselves in hell and we can refuse the love of God. And again, I think that might be possible on the other side of death, but I don't know. Um, but I, I'm not afraid anymore. I, I, primarily because if that's where our focus is, in my experience, once we got people over the line, then we moved on to the next person. And we said, I love you so much, I don't want you to, this, again, from my own autobiography, I love you, I don't want you to go to hell, but then once I know you're not going to hell, you're safe, I'm going to move on to someone else. I'm like, well, well did you love me then? Or was I just like a project? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want you to get me here and then like move on. I, I want to continue this relationship we have. Um, and I don't think that getting people out of hell leads to transformation. And what God really wants, I think, is for us to be the human beings we were created to be, for the image of God in us that remains marred even, even after we experience justifying grace. There's still a whole lot of junk on top of that that God wants to get rid of. Um, this work of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ, to become like Him now, not just put that off till then. Uh, I think when there are a group of people who are living with that end in mind, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, and that's what we're going to do, whatever it takes, those are the people I want to be around. Um, those are the people who are embodying a story that I find compelling. Okay. Um, so I, I love the way that you tie the whole story together. You're looking at the Bible as a whole. And I have a lot of friends and acquaintances who have a, have a difficult time getting into that story because they get to the first part of chapter one and science has told them that what we're seeing as the story of God's creation is not what it could have been. And they can't get past that and look deeper into the story to look to the, what the heart of the story really means for them because they get so stuck on that first part. How do you deal with that? How do you get yeah. somebody to step back past that and look at the bigger story and... Yeah, that is a great question. And that's, that's the reason why a lot of people, like you say, don't get past the first page. But it's not because of the first page. I think it's because of what we've said about the first page. 
Like we've said, some of us, that this, you take this literally, God created the world in six literal days. Even though we know, those of us who garden, that you need sunlight for green things to grow. But that sun doesn't come to the fourth day. Um, uh, I, if I were to open a book, pretend this isn't the Bible, and I would say, once upon a time, what would you expect to come after that? A fairy tale. A story, right? There are, like, there are certain ways of communicating that we, we get what they are. Um, and the trouble with the Bible is that some of us come to it and just can refuse to acknowledge the genres, the different distinct genres that are in it. We read it in, with one voice. Um, you come to Kentucky, we can go to the Creation Museum, and you can see the dinosaurs having a good time with the people. Um, we can go north, and you can go on a life-size model of Noah's Ark, which has cost the people of, ta of Kentucky millions in tax dollars. Um, because of some, pe some people are just committed to a certain way of telling the story. And the, a lot of the folk I'm friends with, it's, it's not just laughable, it's outrageous. And we reject that story. But they're not rejecting the story, they're rejecting the story we have said about the story, right? Uh, and the, the reason I know people are not rejecting the story is because people love the story. And because we do such a lousy job of telling our story, God finds all kinds of artists to tell that story. What's, uh, what's the biggest selling book series in the history of publishing? The Harry Potter series. What do you discover in the first book? Why is Harry Potter the boy who lived? Because his mother got in the way and took the death that was coming to Harry, right? She took it on herself. She laid down her life for her son. And in the last book, spoilers, <laughs> what does Harry do? He lays down his life for his friends, right? That's the, it's not the magic. It's not the spells that make those books compelling. It's because at their heart is the story of love self-sacrificial love that you lay your life down and that's how you defeat evil. You don't defeat evil with evil's methods. My favorite movie series is The Lord of the Rings, which I know if you're a Tolkien fan, the movie series is almost blasphemous because it's so, you know. But anyway, getting over that, as a series of movies, how many of you love The Lord of the Rings? Watch them, right? What's at the heart? Who's the hero of the story? We think it's Frodo. It's not Frodo. How does Frodo get there? It's Sam, right? Sam's the one who carries him. I can't carry it for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. And he knows there's not enough food to go back to the Shire, but he pretends like there is, so they can keep going, knowing he's going to his death but he's going to defeat evil. His friend's going to do the work, but he's going to carry his friend. Sam lays down his life for his friend, and evil is defeated. That's why everybody kneels to the hobbits, not to the armies, right? That's our story. 
And Tolkien got it, and he needed to tell it in another way. C.S. Lewis found another way to tell it. Philip Pullman. How many of you know who Philip Pullman is? How many of you read his Dark Materials? The trilogy, right? This may not resonate with so many of you, but Philip Pullman wrote a series as an atheist. It's sort of a counter-Narnia story in which God is this weak character who eventually dies. Spoiler. But at the heart of his dark materials is a universe that is going to be destroyed. And the only way it's saved at the end is by the two main characters to make a choice out of love that is utterly of sacrifice. And even Philip Pullman, as he's trying to write a story against that story, can't help but tell the story. We have this incredibly beautiful and powerful story, and when people see it in an artistic form and read it in those books and watch it in those movies, they're like, oh, yes! And it's our story, and we do such a lousy job of telling it. That's why I come anywhere that people ask me to come and tell this story. Because we have to do a better job of telling it. And it's not just with our words. It has to be with our lives. I just finished reading a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Creeder. Best book I've read in 10 years. It is thick and it's academic with lots of footnotes. The subtitle of the book is The Unlikely Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he makes the case, and I I believe it to be true because it continues what we read in the book of Acts, is that it was the lives of the Christians that were the gospel. It wasn't the proclamation of the gospel. It was the lives that people were drawn to. Because those tiny, tiny communities lived in such a way that made no sense and made all the sense in the world to the people who looked in and they said, I want what you have. And the tragedy of the church in this country is that we've been in the ascendant for so long, we still think people want what we have. And spoilers, a lot of people don't. Because what we have is really not that different from what they have. So this story, it's not about just knowing it, it's not about just being able to tell it in 20 minutes. It has to shape our lives. It has to transform us. It has to lead us into say, where am I embodying this love of God and neighbor to the extent that it is sacrificial? Because I discovered that when I live with that orientation, I am being saved. And it is kind of like the program in the early days when Dr. Bob and Bill were working with the drunks in the psych wards, and none of them were getting sober, and they were like, this is stupid, why are we doing this? And his wife said, when was the last time you had a drink? Oh, this is how I am staying sober. By giving my life away to others, this is how I am living the life I want to live and can't live. And I think that is the heart of the gospel that if we want what God promises, we have to be giving it away. We have to be giving our lives away to one another and to those who need what we have. 
But the stories that we hear elsewhere say, oh no, scarcity. You, you can't be doing that. Oh, you, you, you can't be doing those kinds of things. That's just crazy. Well, Jesus' family thought he was crazy. I mean, the Gospels tell us that. And he turned around and said, Who, am I? Who is my mother and my brother and my sister? It's those who do the will of our Father. And in that moment, Jesus redefines family. Who are our brothers and sisters? What are we willing to lay down for them? What are they going to lay down for us? Can we find the life we don't even know is possible because we haven't even tried to find it? I think that's the life this, this story is calling us to. And I think that story, one we have yet to hear, many of us, can transform us. It will wreck us. <laughs> the gospel is always bad news before it's good news. But my goodness, it's, it's beautiful and it's true. And it is saving me. I think I just preached a little bit again. Sorry. I have no idea what time frame we're on, so I'm, I'm not in charge of the clock. Uh, all right, there's a hand. We have Okay, one over there and one over here, and I'll try and keep my responses a little shorter. So who has the live mic? Live testing one. Yes. It's possible that you just answered this question, but um, it, it seems to me that in this interregnum period between the, the first coming and the second coming, uh, when the, the world is groaning, and we are groaning. Everyone, all kinds of people are, are groaning. Um, is, is a time in which uh, perfection is not possible, that re rec true reconciliation is just beyond our grasp, and that you know, divisions still persist. Um, but so, so I'm looking at um, what it is that we do as Christians in the face of all that, and it seems to me that it's, it's about, you know, sure we fail, sure we try this, we try that, and we end up in a pile of <laughs> uh, failure and despair, uh, but that it's, it's the coming back, it's, it's the asking for grace, and, and and receiving a, a moment, maybe it's just a moment of grace. Yeah. You know, we can't, we cannot be beatified, <laughs> you know, forever. Uh, is it, I mean, is that kind of how you see the, the, the Christian life? Is that, yeah, we're broken, we're everything, but that, but that if we just, in spite of it all, just stop for a moment and ask for grace. Yeah, no, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. And I, uh, the question I hear in there is, like, clearly, we're, everything is still messed up, if not worse. 
Um, so, you know, do we, how, how do we live knowing that that may not change before Jesus comes again? And I, I, I think that, that um, one of the driving narratives of this culture is the importance of success. How do, how do you know if you live in the good life? Is if you're successful in whatever it is you're doing. And success, I don't think, is a value in the gospel. Fidelity, faithfulness is a value. Success is not. Um, so for me, I think this story tells me how the story is going to end. And so knowing our destiny, knowing how we're going to be, that informs how I want to live today, regardless of whether it works out okay. If that's where we're heading, I want to do my best to live into that story now. In, in the program, in 12-step groups, you would hear this. Do the next right thing and don't be invested in the outcome. Just do it because it's the next right thing. Regardless of whether it works or not, regardless of whether it's successful or not, regardless of whether that you know, six-week course on reconciliation led to any change in anybody's life, if that's what you feel like, you, then do it because it's the next right thing to do. And trust that God is at work, even in that. Um, that's what keeps me from despair, because if I watch the news, if I, if I see that we can, we're still capable of literally destroying this planet with nuclear weapons, that millions and millions of people are fleeing their homes and putting themselves in harm's way, like the poet says, because when people put their children in boats, it's because the sea is safer than the land. When people are hungry and starving, when my neighbors are getting that, all their worldly possessions put on the street because they can't pay the, month, the rent this month, how do I resist falling into despair? Because I know how the story ends. That's what keeps me going, honestly. If I didn't believe that, then I would fall into despair. And I would take Solomon's advice and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die and it may all be blown up anyway. But I don't. I believe this vision. And I believe it is possible that every time we pray, as we prayed this morning, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the place where you are sovereign. May, that be, may you be sovereign here and I am your agent. And I will do what I can do that is within my power to do with the power of the Spirit in the, in the community in which I live to try and address what I can. If there are hungry people, how can we share a meal? How can we grow food together? If there are people being put out, how do we find housing? And not be in despair because people are hungry still and that people live on the streets still. Despair, I get it, but, but this is where my eyes are <laughs> focusing, and that shapes how I live now, at least on my best days. All right, one more over here. Um, okay, so I'm talking to the mic. Is that better? Okay. I'm a relative newbie. I mean, I've, I've always believed, but it was just sort of um, freestyle. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't reading the Bible or anything like that. However, I am becoming more interested. Um, I would like your advice on 
the best way to read the Bible because from what I know, it's not from start to finish. Um, and then from reading your Bible, I mean, does your book, because I haven't read it yet. My husband brought it home. I'm excited to read it. Excellent. Um, but how, is there anything that I need to know about applying your book to the Bible or vice versa? Yeah, great question. Um, and, and like my book is one way of telling the story. There's, there's all kinds of other great resources. Um, I just, that's been helped, that came out of our experience. Um, yeah, I mean, people, you know, I grew up hearing you should read the Bible through in a year, cover to cover, you know, and Genesis is interesting. Exodus is great, apart from the, you know, the tabernacle details and stuff. Then Leviticus, oh, skin diseases. And, and if you just about make it through that, you get to numbers, which is numbers. <laughs> like, how boring is that, right? Um, so, yeah, how, how do you read the Bible? Um, and I'll, there's all kinds of things I, I, I can say, and I will tell you the one thing I do know is don't read it alone. Read the Bible with other people. Uh, I think, you know, the evangelical world, we've almost made an idol out of our personal quiet time. Um, and our personal study of Scripture. And uh, what I have found in my own personal study of Scripture is when I come to the Scriptures by myself, uh, I don't really learn anything new. I don't really hear anything new because I've already decided what all this already says. It's when I read the Scriptures with others. And not just the people who know more about the Bible than me, but people maybe who have never read it themselves because they come with fresh eyes to see things that I can't see. So how do we read the Bible? We read the Bible in communities. It always has been done, especially with people who aren't like us. Um, and that's the great challenge, is actually creating a space in which that happens and finding people who are willing to do that. Um, but I have found uh, that if I ask people, I said, hey, you know, I, I need some fresh eyes on this book. Will you, would you be interested in reading it with me? Most, I've yet to find people say, absolutely not. Um, and I would read the Gospel of Mark. I would read the story of Jesus, one of the Gospels. Mark is the shortest. It's action-packed. Um, and it'll wreck you. Uh, I, am, I have been blogging through the Gospel of Mark for three years, hit and miss, in the same style as the story of God. Uh, and the series is called The Naked Man. Which, when I look up how people get to the blog, there's some really interesting search terms. <laughs> um, but uh, I am, I, I, like, the way Mark tells the story, um, the way uh, that he presents Jesus uh, and what is happening and the opposition to the Jesus way as well as to the Jesus person, um, I, again, I just keep coming back to that. So it might be that invite some folk to say, hey, do you want to read the Gospel of Mark with me? And, you know, however you end up doing that over a meal, I always think eating food together is great. Um, find people who do know a little bit about the Bible, especially if questions come up. Um, but mostly it's just reading it with other people. My kids have taught me so much. Um, I'm embarrassed that they, like, uh, at their age, I could recite all the books of the Bible. I won sword drill in Sunday school. My kids can name half a dozen books. 
but they embody Scripture in ways I never did at their age because they're in a community where people read Scripture and say, so how do we live? Let's live like this. My daughter Maggie knows that, that peacemaking is part of the gospel. She's in a, a middle school. That, again, we just got the results, you know, the bottom 20 in, in Kentucky. Uh, kids, lots of fighting. Lot, and uh, and la- last semester, she came home, and we were talking about our day over, over dinner, and uh, she said, I said, you know, so what, what happened? Anything? Tell me about your day. And she said, oh, so-and-so, uh, man, you know I told you, he's just been trying to egg on so-and-so in a fight all week. Well, they finally squared off, and I knew he was going to just lay into him, and, and I just got in between them. I told him, you can't do this because you'll, you'll be expelled this time. And, uh, and uh, I said, what happened? She goes, you, you know, well, there was a lot of crowd, and I thought they were kind of going to, like, still, but, you know, they, he didn't. He backed down, and I said, oh. She, I said, and uh, what happened then? She said, well, nothing, you know. Oh, but then later in the day, he came and thanked me. I don't think I would have done that. <laughs> you know? But and it's not even that she's brave. It's just that in that moment, she, she, that's what you do. You know? Um, and it could have easily gone really badly. But Maggie wasn't thinking about what could have happened. She just did the next right thing. Um, and people notice. So many of us, we can show, quote chapter and verse of the Scripture, and we can exegete it till we're blue in the face, and our lives are not compelling. If you moved, would your neighbors care? If someone came in and shut down First Pres Boulder, would anyone come and fight for you other than the membership? I'll tell you what I love, what I've observed. I've observed people walk in from, I'm guessing, from the street today and hang out and be in worship, stand up in the middle of a sermon and not be invited to leave. I went out between the second and third service and there's a guy I know from Lexington, Billy, who I haven't seen for months, who moved here because the, the kind of care he needs he can't find in Lexington, so we moved to Boulder. And here he is in your, your church. And he came and sat over there in the third service. My guess is that's happening. That encourages me that there are some people who would say, wait, oh, that's, that's my place. That's where I go on Sundays. I always have to be asking those questions. And please, for the love of God, don't just have another Bible study. Sit down and say, with all the Bible study we've done so far, are our life conforming to what we already know? Right? I mean, that's, that's the question that, that I constantly come back to. Um, we are at, at this moment, I think, in, in uh, Britain, we were there decades ago, but you're getting there now where the privileged position of the church is just going. And we can either fight for something we never really should have had, 
Or we can say, maybe this is a time for us to make a clean break with the need to be big deals and to have people in government represent our side of things and say, how are we actually going to love each other and love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of who has been voted in to the highest office, to the judiciary, whatever. Are we going to be faithful to Jesus in our life here? And I think we're at this moment where we are, we could go in one direction, and I'm afraid we're just going to keep trying to cling to something else. But what I've seen of my time with you all gives me hope for the institution of the church. I'm not ready to give up yet. Are you? All right. Good. Uh, do you have an, it's got to be announcements because it's a church. You've got to have stuff to say. There are no announcements. That is the announcement. So, uh, but I do want to say something to you. And uh, that is just thank you for being so generous uh, with your time. Oh, you know, yeah. you've been here since Wednesday. You have wife and children at home. Yeah, thank you, please. Yeah. And uh, although you might be uh, tired of your own voice, I would love to ask you as a closing if you would just pray for us. Yeah. That'd be oh, great. goodness. Yeah. And speaking of my own voice, if you're someone who doesn't like to read print, uh, uh, my wife and I actually recorded the story of God. So I don't even know if you know it's available as an audio book. Um, but, it, but if, excellent. I, we had to self-publish it because no one would, would, would like the, the publishers wouldn't let us do it because I wanted to read it with my wife because we've always done this together. And they said, no, we just want the author. I'm like, well, she is, but you know, she's just not on the cover. So anyway, so we, we, we did it ourselves. But it's available on Audible and iTunes. Uh, so if you like to read by, with your ears, then that is available. But uh, yeah, let me thank you for the invitation. Let me pray for you all. God, your kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven because the, the, the people of First Presbyterian Church Boulder have been living as faithfully as they know how for decades. Um, that people's lives have been transformed because they're part of this community or because they live in proximity to this community for decades. I'm grateful for the welcome I have received and for the welcome I have seen others received even today. I'm grateful for the faithful prayers of people in this congregation for decades. I'm grateful that your name has been adored that you have been worshipped in this place and that people have eaten the bread and drunk from the cup for decades. And now, God, this is the congregation today who continue to want to be faithful to you to, to the heritage they have received, to the tradition that is represented here, and to continue to share what they have found with the wider community. I know the church is asking questions of resources and buildings and this great location in proximity to people downtown. 
Um, Holy Spirit, would you guide and shape those conversations that your kingdom will continue to come here among these good people in the days and weeks and years to come. And again, God, for those who are part of this community, who are wrestling with all these important questions, would you continue to help this congregation create space to do that together, not just to wrestle with it by themselves or at home with the family, but together. Say, how do we live more faithfully into this gospel, into this story of God, into the story of Jesus? So that our destiny is being fulfilled here and now. We don't have to wait. We can work towards it now because you are at work here now, oh God. Would you continue through your spirit to bring conversions of the imagination that they can begin to see their life in new ways, to begin to see their mission in new ways, to imagine new ways of being faithful here. And I pray for their neighbors that they will find the life of this congregation compelling and truly want what they see here. All is grace, all is love, all is mercy, for which we praise and thank you. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you all. And I'm going to stick around for just a little bit, so if you have other questions you didn't want to do on the mic, then pop up. I've still got somewhat of a voice left.